It was a blistering hot day in the interior of Ecuador when 10 people, five couples sat down to eat what would be for the five men their last meal on earth. For these missionaries um, were about to embark on a mission to the Alka Indians, a group of savages who had never really responded to a white man. And as they ate their meal and finished in the solemnity of that time, they sang and embraced. They sang the song we know in the hymnal as Finlandia, be still my soul, the Lord is on thy side, for thy God doth undertake to guide thy future as thy past. And they left and were not found alive again. But that really doesn't surprise us because, you know, we expect that of missionaries, don't we? That kind of faith and courage and commitment. If you were given the responsibility of voting on a missionary's appointment and you were sitting on that board that determined his um, credentials and qualifications and commitment and you were told, this man is not a man of faith. He has never learned to depend on God. He's never learned to trust Him so he doesn't pray. You would probably vote no to his appointment and you should. But the tragedy is that they are not given the privilege of voting on us. What about being people of faith, those of us who are left, who, who stand behind them? For the same things that characterize these men of God who represent Him on the field ought to characterize us, but it doesn't. For the most part, we are people who walk by sight. It's risky to live by faith. Therefore, we want to see the end before we make our decision. Therefore, we live by sight. Therefore, we do not please God. And so we've come to do a little soul searching in these last week, this last week or so concerning faith as it's found in the 11th, 10th, 11th, and 12th chapters of Hebrews. And we said that religious faith can be characterized or categorized into three categories. There is saving faith, which is conversion. There is doctrinal faith, which are the truths by which Christians live. And there is practical faith, which is believing that God will take care of me even in a difficult situation. It's the ability to stand with your wife and sing a hymn of faith when you, probably, when you know you probably will never see her again. It's saying to God, I want to give you this burden for I'm weary of wrestling with it. And what we're really dealing with this morning is public enemy number one, worry. I've never seen a tombstone with an epitaph on it that said he died of worry, but I wonder how many people do. If you can't handle it, why are you trying to handle it? If you can't change it, why are you trying to change it? And so the 11th chapter begins with a detailed description of faith. Not a definition of faith, but a description of it. And I want us just to pretend this morning that we're just going to rap concerning what faith is. 
I want, to, I want us to pretend that we're sitting across from each other uh, around a conference table in a conference room and we're just going to rap together about what faith is as this verses, these verses presented or describe it. And I believe that if you look all the way down through verse 6, you're going to see five things, at least five things about faith. First of all, this. Faith involves assurance and conviction. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That word assurance is a word that means to stand under something and give it support. And it was used in extra-biblical affairs for those documents that were really title deeds. And so a person went out and bought some property and he got the title deed of that property. And the title deed stood under the transaction and supported it. And so some Greek scholars have translated this verse, now faith is the title deed of things hoped for. That's pretty good. Your faith stands under a circumstance and, and supports it with assurance. And the word conviction means proof, really. It is living proof in the mind that this is the way it's going to be. It's living proof in the mind that God is going to make this happen this way or God's going to control this thing this way. It's believing without a shadow of a doubt that God is in charge here. Now there are many illustrations of this word in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Many illustrations of the proof of the mind. I've chosen Moses as the illustration to use. In the 24th verse of this same chapter it says that Moses by faith did not choose to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He did not, he, he did not choose to, to live in the court and dwell there in that pomp and circumstance. But by faith he chose rather to suffer for the people of God. And why would a man do that? Why would a man make a choice like that? The 26th verse said it was because he was looking to the reward. And so Moses looked at the immediate and he said, I'm not going to waste my life on the immediate. I'm going to look for the ultimate. I'm not going to be hung up on the immediate. I'm going to cast my eyes upon the ultimate. I'm not going to be bogged down with the immediate circumstances. I'm going to trust God in the ultimate to bring me through this circumstance to that. And that is faith. The second thing this verse teaches about faith is this, that faith is always tied to the future. The word hope there refers to future things. So do your worries. Your worries are linked to things future. Your worries are linked to the world of the what-ifs. Occasionally when I'm counseling people, if I sense a great deal of anxiety and fear in them, I'll ask them just to sit down and write out all the what-ifs of their, of their life. What if I have a terminal illness? What if I lose my job? What if my spouse leaves me? What if? Just all kinds of what-ifs. Faith initiates an adventure that insists that God can handle the what-ifs of your life better than you can, whatever they are. There's a third thing about faith. Faith has its, has its object, the things that are not seen. 
Is there a businessman here this morning who operates his business on the not scenes? Probably not. Most of us operate our business, we, we, we run our churches, we, we operate our families, our homes on the basis of the scene. We really operate our lives primarily on two things. Are you listening? Primarily on history and tradition. We take yesterday's record and we determine tomorrow's program. We look at how it, hap how it worked for others in the past, how it worked in the past, and we plan the future on that. We listen to what counsel others have about what they did under circumstances, and we take all of that together, and we take the scene, lay it out there, and we operate on that basis. Now that's good business, but it's not good Christianity. For the Christian man of faith is the person who operates, who focuses on the unseen. And what is greater reality, the seen or the unseen? The Apostle Paul said, the things which are seen are temporal, the things which are not seen are eternal, which is the greater reality. Sometimes what we think we see, we don't really see. I mean, sometimes there's a difference between perception and reality. I heard about this couple who lived at the turn first of this century, way back in the sticks. They were an older couple and they had never seen a car. So you can imagine how frightened they were one morning when they stepped out on the front porch and they saw this black monster coming down the road in a cloud of dust, coughing and sputtering and backfiring and rumbling. They thought it looked like some monster. And the woman let out a cry of terror and made a dive under the bed and Paul got his shotgun and when the monster went by, he unloaded both barrels on it. Did you kill it, Paul? she cried. I don't think so, he replied, but I made him turn loose of that feller he had in his mouth. You know, there's sometimes when there is a difference between perception and reality. The man of faith is the man who focuses, who has as his object the unseen. He's a man of vision. It was what characterized Charles Kalman and his biographer said of him. He was able to see what the crowd never saw and wider and fuller. He was a man of far horizons. William Carey saw the whole world on his map while his fellow preachers were involved in their own little parishes. And it was said of A.B. Simpson that he was the kind of man who always seemed to press forward when his fellows had not seen anything left to, to, to explore. A man of vision. Oh, I pray God give us people a vision who are able to see what is not seen on the surface. These people are, who will focus as an object the unseen are people who are optimistic. You know, a pessimist is a person who sees difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist is a person who sees opportunity in every difficulty. And a pessimist usually sees the difficulty before he sees the opportunity and he causes, he holds back the optimist. And someone said it like this, 
Caution clips the wings of those men of God who were designed to soar. You and I were designed to soar, to see the unseen, to be optimistic, to believe that God is in control. And even though everything else dictates to the contrary, God is in control and He's going to work it out for good. I was not taught to think by faith. I was taught to think by sight. I can remember growing up and hearing my father talk about all the time, will we make it till next year? You know, that was kind of the conversation that went on. We lived on a farm, and so we just kind of made it from one crop to the next. And I've, I've, I've heard him talk many times, and I can remember as a child fearing that we wouldn't, that we wouldn't make it to the next crop. And that's the way we gave to the church. And that's the way we operated in our home. It was always, will we make it? What about this that's before us? Kind of a tension, anxiety, fear, going on, interaction all the time. And consequently, I didn't grow up to be a man of vision or, or an optimist in the beginning. But I prayed and sought God's mind in this enough to know that the man of faith is a person who focuses on the unseen and believes it's true. There's a fourth thing about faith from this text. It's this, that faith is basic to pleasing God. Verse 3 says, now you believe that God created the heavens by the word of His mouth. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that God said, let there be light and there was light? Do you believe that? Shake your head like this if you believe it. Well, we, we kind of believe that. We, we open up the book of Genesis and we read that God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And we know that word creation means to cause to be out of something out of nothing. And we believe that. Now, is it rational this morning to believe that God can create something out of nothing and not believe that God can take care of your life. And he says that Enoch and Abel were men who gained the approval of God. They gained the approval of God. How did they gain the approval of God? They gained the approval of God by trusting Him. Do you know how to please God? Do you know how to do that? Let me tell you when you're pleasing God. You're pleasing God when you're letting God do for you what you cannot see Him do. You're pleasing God when you give God a burden that you cannot carry. You're pleasing God when you're trusting Him. Now we have all these substitutes for faith. I want to please God, so I'm going to substitute these things for faith. Uh, this is the way I'm going to please God. I'm going to, I'm going to try harder. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to stop eating. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to stop watching television. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to start giving more. I'm going to pray longer. I'm going to start visiting. I'm going to do all these things, my substitute for faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For God's nature is so designed, God is such, that He is not pleased unless we are trusting Him. Every car I know is designed to run on gasoline and diesel, but have you bought any gasoline lately? 
I mean, how much is a dollar? How much is a gallon of gas? It's a dollar twenty-six at least in self-service, you know. And, and who can afford a tank of gas? I decided this last week that I wasn't going to run my car on gas. I can't afford it. Um, it's not, it, besides, it's not plentiful. You know, they're telling us all the time that, that, uh, that we're running out of oil, petroleum, and gas. And, and water's a lot more plentiful, and, and you don't have all these, this, em, these emissions that come when you burn water. I got lots of water, it doesn't cost me much. So I just backed my car up to the, uh, uh, to the backyard last week, and I got me a rubber hose and turned on the water, stuck it in the gas tank, and from now on, I'm going to run my automobile off of water, with water. You believe that? You, you're, you know, if you believe that, you're crazier than I am if I do that, you know. No, that's not true. I'm not that stupid, but I may be. I may be that foolish if I think that I'm going to please God without trusting Him. For God is so designed that He is not pleased unless we're depending on Him, unless we stretch Him, unless we prove Him. God is not pleased unless we live our life in dependence upon Him. It's basic to pleasing God. And you can mark this down and put it down as a truth if you go out of here this morning without learning how, without giving God your life in dependence and trust, you're displeasing Him when you leave. One last thing about faith. Faith means that we believe God exists and that He is a rewarder of the seeker. The problem is we don't either. We don't really believe God exists and we really don't believe that He is a rewarder of the seeker. Now you say, now hold it. You're going to stand there in that pulpit and tell me that I don't believe God exists? Listen, that word believe that God is means that I am sure of God and that I am confident that God is not somewhere else but is here. And I have an assurance and a confidence that God has invaded my life and His presence is nearer than my hand. That's what that word means. Are you really sure of God? To be sure of God is to be sure of His throne and everything behind it. Are you really sure of God? Now sometimes some people say to me, prove that God exists. In all humility I say to them, prove that He doesn't. I mean, you go with me today, if you have any problem believing, in, believing God is, you go with me to a little white frame house in West Texas and you talk to that sweet saintly grandmother I know. Not my grandmother, somebody else's. And you just sit about five hours and just talk to her. Now she's put her husband in the grave and she's put her children in the grave. And she's experienced some devastating loneliness and she's had some terrible physical problems. But she is so sure of God. I mean, there's no question in her mind about God. And in that confidence of her, in her heart and mind that God really is, she lives in the abiding joy of the Christian life. 
And when it seems like that that Social Security check is not enough, she just trusts God. And when it seems like that she's going to be left all alone in this world and not able to take care of herself, she just believes God will. And when she understands that there are many things in life that she will not understand and doesn't understand, she just believes God will help her to understand. She's just sure of Him. Are you? It sure does make a difference who's standing by, doesn't it? I mean, you're going to be different. The way you act is going to be different depending on who's near. I told some people recently about the time I was hurt when I was a little boy. First recollection I have of ever going to the doctor. I was scared to death. And I was just having a screaming fit in this doctor's office. I remember that low these many years. And the doctor went outside and he said, Buck, that was my father, he said, Buck, come in here, will you? And Daddy came in the room and they shut the door and everything was different. I mean, he knew nothing about medicine. He knew nothing about what was going on. But he was my father and he was there. He was right there. And it didn't matter to me what was happening to me any longer as long as he was there. Faith is the assurance, is the conviction, is the confidence that God is here. I mean, He's nearer than this hand. Now I want to give you a little test. You try this test on yourself. Just imagine this. Imagine somebody has been watching you for this whole year long. Somebody's been watching your life for a year. Having watched your life for a year, would they be convinced that God is? And the second part of this little test, ask yourself this. If God suddenly no longer existed, just hypothetically, all of a sudden, God just disappears off the radar screen and no longer is, would it make any difference in your life? I mean, most of us would go trucking right along just as we've always have because we've never learned to believe He is. And faith not only believes that He is, but that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Now notice, notice, underline that. Put it in your mind. He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. It doesn't say who seek His reward. It says who seeks Him. I ask you this probing question. I have to ask myself, is there really a wish in your heart for God? The measure of our quest is already determined by the measure of our desire. Is there really a wish in your heart for God? Do you long for Him, long to know Him? Do you hunger for Him? Is there really a wish in your heart for God? And that word seek is a different word than just looking for Him. It's a word that means require or demand. Now this is what it says. Faith involves going to God saying, I require you, Lord, to come through on this because of your promise. We don't like to think like that. We don't even like to say that. It's difficult for me to even convey that right now. Those who believe He, he is and believe that He's on the scene and that He's invaded our lives with a gracious presence are not ashamed to go to God and say, I require you to come through on this circumstance. 
That's a man of faith. And that's absent from most of our life. And I can just see old Jacob wrestling with, with the angel of the Lord in the early morning hours. And I can just hear him saying, I'm not going to let you alone until you bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And the man of faith is the man who goes to God and says, I'm not going to turn loose of the horns of this altar until I get a, an audience with you and see the reward of that presence. Now I want to make two suggestions and I'll hurry and quit. You need to ask yourself this morning, why is it so difficult for you to believe? Is it because you fear God will not come through? We are afraid of the unknown. Is it because there's just been a habit, you've kind of lived under a conditioned response, you know, that to, to fear rather than to trust? Is it just out of habit? Is it because of pride? Do you feel, well, I don't need God. I've got it made. I can take care of my own business. I had a guy tell me that one time. We were praying for rain in West Texas. He said, I don't need to pray for rain. I've got an automatic rain machine. I just go out and punch a button. He's talking about his irrigation well. Is it because you've, you've never been taught to live by faith? Is that why it's so difficult to believe? Is it like it was in my home that everything was met with anxiety and fear? Second suggestion. Do yourself a favor. Begin today to live one day at a time. Now you say, whoop, well... You know, I've heard that all, all, I've heard every sermon I've ever heard on worry. The guy finally wins up by, ends up by saying, live one day at a time. You don't have a right to say that unless you're living one day at a time. Montaigne, the French uh, philosopher, said, all my life has been filled with terrible tragedies, most of which never happened. John Rushkin has on his desk, had on his desk a little stone with one word engraved on it today. Now I want to give you a verse and I want you to turn to it. I want you to turn to Psalm 118. We're going to look at this verse. Psalm 118. Everybody's turning to that verse. That's in the, uh, that's in the Old Testament, Psalm 118. Verse 24 is the verse. Got lots of time. Get that verse and we're going to do it. Let's read it together. Let's say it together. Everybody ready? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's say it again. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a prepared day. It's the day that God made. It's a present day. This is the day. It's a present day. It's a precious day. It's a providential day. Everything that touches you has to first go through the gracious hands of God. It's a passing day. It's the only day you have. Do yourself a favor. Live a day at a time. In John Haggai's little book, How to Win Over Worry, he tells this story, and I'm through. He tells about the birth of his child, John Jr. At, at this little boy's birth, attended by one of the most famous uh, doctors in the land, 
But this, this, this doctor happened to be intoxicated that night and he bungled the delivery. He caused irreparable brain damage. And the little boy um, came into the world crippled and impaired. As a matter of fact, he can't sit in his high chair, wheel, uh, wheelchair, except with complete body braces. This is what he says in this book. During the first year of this little lad's life, eight doctors said he could not possibly survive. For the first two years of his life, my wife had to feed him every three hours with a breast feeder. It took a half hour to prepare, prepare for the feeding, and it took another half hour to clean up and get him back to bed. Not once during those two years did she ever get out of the house or any diversion, whatever. Never did she get more than two hours of sleep at one time. My wife is the former Christine Barker, Bristol, Virginia, who in 1943 won the Southern Regional Hour of Charm Contest. Before she was out of high school, she was a popular young lady with an outstanding voice. By the time she'd reached her early 20s, some of the nation's leading musicians acclaimed her voice as one of the outstanding contemporary female voices in all America. From the time she was 13, she was popular as a singer and constantly in the public eye. Her, hers was the experience of receiving and rejecting some fancy offers with even fancier incomes in order to marry this aspiring pastor with no church to pastor. Now, after five years of marriage, tragedy strikes. The whole episode was so unnecessary. Eight of the nation's leading doctors say that our son cannot survive. From the life of public service, she's now marooned within the walls of the little home. Her beautiful voice no longer enraptures public audiences with a story of Jesus. It's now silenced or at, at least muted to the subdued hummings of lullabies. Had it not been for her spiritual maturity whereby she laid hold of the resources of God and lived one day at a time, this heart-rendering experience would long since have depraved her reason. John Edwin, Jr., our little son, is much improved but still paralyzed. The future with respect to him is unpredictable. We do rejoice that he's committed his heart to Jesus Christ and gives evidence of his genuine concern for the things of the Lord. I attribute his commitment to Jesus Christ and his wonderful disposition to the sparkling radiance of an emotionally mature, Christ-centered mother, Christ mother who has mastered the discipline of living one day at a time. She can do it. So can you. Would you bow and pray for, with me? Our Father, it is with some degree of embarrassment and shame that we admit today that we've never learned to trust you. Never learn to focus on the unseen never learn to operate in the faith dimension. We confess that to Thee, Father. And Lord, we want to learn to live this day in faith, just this day. So all the anxiety and all of the 
despair and all the fear would just melt away in the warmth and confidence of faith. And I pray this morning that those of us who need that kind of surrender and trust in God, to these you would give the measure of faith. so that we might begin to live victoriously and triumphantly in the world. I pray this in the name of Jesus, and I ask it for his sake. Now these are our invitations. Would you look here? The first invitation for you this morning is for you to exercise your faith. Faith is a muscle. It has to be exercised. Exercise your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. He died on the cross. He rose again. He's God's Son, sufficient for salvation and ready to save and forgive. Those who will repent of their sin and come by faith believing in Him, that saving faith. Have you ever really trusted Jesus and Jesus only for your salvation? Have you ever given it to Him? The second invitation is for you this morning to begin to exercise practical faith. To come like this man in Louisiana, this fellow on the retreat was telling me about this weekend who just gave God everything he had, his business and everything. God's done some marvelous things in his life. He's discovered through the leadership of God as this man began to trust God, a new dimension in, oil fill, uh, in an oil fill uh, procedure. And he said, I heard him pray last week, Father, how much do you want me to give of this business to you? I'll give you 99% of it if you want it. It's for you to begin to exercise practical faith to come today to say, I want to trust my life to God. I want to begin to live victoriously. Walk with Him after His leadership. That we call rededication of life. The third invitation is for you to come this morning to place your life here, publicly declaring your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've trusted Him somewhere else. Maybe in the secrecy of your own home you'd like to come today to publicly declare Him, to be baptized at the proper time, or to place your life here as God leads you to place your life in our church. We'll stand to sing and we invite you to come. Do it right now. People of faith will respond. Let's do it.